We're going to be in Ezra chapter 1 and 2 this week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have now to look into your word. And Lord, we just, we ask that you'd help us to understand what it is that you want us to learn from this historical book. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the power of your word. We pray that you would turn it loose on our lives and in our hearts today. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Before we had started the book of Colossians, we had done a study in the kings and gotten right up to the place where, you know, kings of Judah had also been um, sent into exile. And so then we started Colossians, and we got to a point where it was a good place to break for the summer. Sometimes in the summer, I'll take something different. So we said we're going to go through the book of Ezra this summer, and it fits right into where we were when we left off in the books of Kings and uh, Chronicles. Well, that's why that's why we're doing this. Anyway, in 1994, I had the opportunity <clears throat> to go back to Puebla, Mexico, which is a, a town real close to where I grew up and spent the first 10 years of my life. And I was speaking at a camp in Puebla, and I was staying with the camp director and just really enjoying being there. And one day he said, hey, would you like to go to Tehuacan? Now, that's where I lived for 10 years, and it's about two hours away. And I said, oh, I would absolutely love that. So he said, sure, let's go. We jumped in the car and we started down there. It's about a two-hour drive. And we, when I was a kid, Tehuacan was a town of about 25,000. Well, when we went in 1994, it was a town of 250,000, if you can imagine. So as we're pulling into the town, I'm thinking, I don't know where I am. I have no idea where anything is. I don't know what's going on. And finally, I said to him, you know what? Let's find the center of town. Let's find that plaza. And we found the plaza that was there when I was a kid. And I said, okay, I can get us where we're going now. And so from there, I was able to take all the roads and all the turns. Went to the house that I grew up in and met with a family that was living there. Um, remembered them and they remembered me. And then saw the church that my parents were part of planning. And I went home that day with just this amazing sense of joy. Having had a chance to see the place where I had spent some years and some time growing up and to see that God was still at work in, in wonderful and amazing ways. It was very memorable for me to go back. Now imagine what it must have been for the Jewish people who had been sent to Babylon. And they're there 70 years. And now it's time to go back. Now they get to go home. Now for many of them... This is really difficult because they may even be too old to go back. Many of them had already died. And many of those that were going to go back had never been to Jerusalem, had never seen the temple. So this is kind of the historical setting that we're going to look at. Now just very quickly, here's the chart that we used when we were looking at, uh, at the kings. The northern kingdom you see there was exiled to Assyria and their, those ten tribes are gone and, and basically never heard from again. The southern kingdom continued for a while, <clears throat> and then in uh, 597 was the first. You see there's three arrows there, th- three separate deportations or exiles of people. We think that in 586 is when Daniel might have been taken, and of course the temple was destroyed in there as well. So then you've got the people of Israel in Babylon. Uh, and I'm getting a little bit of a ringing. Is that me? Okay. I just want to make sure I'm not uh, doing anything wrong here. Anyway, so we've got, <clears throat> you've got these three deportations. They're, they're in Babylon now. They've got 70 years that they're going to be there. And the Persians come in and 
take over Babylon. So now the Persians are in control. And the Persians said, you know what, let's send people back. And so they have three different times when they send people back to the Promised Land. The first one we're going to look at today and next week, and that's Zerubbabel. He leads the first group back. After that, Ezra leads the group, and then after that, Nehemiah does. A bunch of years in between. You see those years there, and it's in your notes as well. Now, the king of Persia did this because he really thought that the best way to handle uh, nations that they had conquered was to send them back and help them establish their communities, and they would then be loyal to the king of Persia, and they would be a buffer with other nations that were out there maybe trying to... Now, Babylonians had done the opposite. They'd said, we're not leaving anybody here. We're taking them and forcing them into into labor in in Babylon. So opposite views on how to do that. But let's go ahead and jump into Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus and put to put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout the kingdom. So the Lord is working here. He's fulfilled a promise that he made um, that he was going to use Cyrus to bring his people back to the land of, uh, land of Israel. Now, Jeremiah is the guy that warned the people for years 23 years he warned them, you guys have got to follow God. Put away the idols. If you don't, he's going to send you into captivity. Well, they didn't learn, and they finally got sent into captivity um, for 70 years. Verse 2, this is what the king Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, first of all, you have to admire his arrogance, don't you? Um, the Lord God has given me all of the kingdoms in the world. I, you know, I don't think he understood how big the world was at that point, but he thought he owned them all. He thought he was over all of them. So he said, the Lord has given me that. And, and Cyrus didn't believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel, other than as one of many gods. He was a polytheist, and he wanted to keep everybody happy. That was really what he wanted to do. And so he appointed people to go and build a temple in Jerusalem. Now, there's a um, in archaeology they discovered something called the Cyrus Cylinder. If you go online, you can see a picture of it. And on the cylinder, it recorded some of the dates and, and figures and some of the information show that Cyrus did this with a lot of the nations. He would send them back to their own cultures, back to their own countries, and expected them then to be thankful and loyal to him. Um, now, under the Holy Spirit's guidance, <clears throat> 150 years before this event, 150 years before, um, Cyrus's name is mentioned by Isaiah as the one who's going to send the people back. It's one of the prophecies that you'll see in Isaiah. Now, Josephus, who wrote, he's a Jewish historian, wrote that Cyrus was shown the prophecy, and it was in Isaiah 44:28. And he wanted to fulfill it once he saw that it had been written so long ago. And so Isaiah prophesied specifically God would guide Cyrus in conquering the Babylonians, and then he would send the people back to Jerusalem. So Ezra and Nehemiah, is, it was one book originally written. Um, it's, it is thought, and I think probably accurately, that Ezra is the one who wrote First and Second Chronicles, and then Ezra and Nehemiah, the book, and then also Psalm 119. It's also thought 
that he was the guy that got the 120 scholars together to put together the first, the canon of the Old Testament books. Because up until that time, there was a scroll of Isaiah, there was Jeremiah, there was all these minor things put together, all these psalms scattered all over. And he and these guys brought it all together in what we know now as our Old Testament canon. He was the first guy uh, to do that and make, put that all in place. <clears throat> so verse 3 then, we have now the decree from Cyrus. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. So anybody at all, this is this is something that anybody that wants to do can go back. It's not required. If they want to stay in Babylon or whatever part of the, uh, of the um, empire they are, they're happy to do so. They're welcome to do so. Um, but this was what had prophesied, and this is what is now taking place. Uh, verse 4, whenever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver, and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as voluntary offerings for the temple of God. So he said, listen, the people that are going back, get ready to go. And all the people around them, all the neighbors, you guys need to help them. Donate. Give them livestock. Give them things that they're going to need for the trip. And give them an offering also for the temple of God. Now, we're going to just stop there, draw an implication, and then keep going. One of the things that I thought was interesting was that God made a promise to the people of Israel. If you worship idols, if you follow other gods, you will pay the consequences. And the consequences in this case, there had been several things that came, and this is finally the last thing. God says, I'm taking you out of the land. I'm going to let Jerusalem be destroyed. I will bring you back, but it will be after 70 years. So God is a God who makes promises, and He keeps them. And Daniel 9, 4 Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, you are great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. So Daniel's saying, Lord, you know, you are a God who who knows what's going on. And and you are a God who plans these things. And you are a God who promised through Jeremiah that we would be restored. And it says earlier in the book of Daniel, Daniel's reading along in Jeremiah, studying the book of Jeremiah. He had a copy of it. And he realized the 70 years were up. And because the 70 years were up, Daniel goes into prayer mode. Okay, God, it's done. It's time. Let's go. Send your people back. You promised. Keep your promise, Lord God. And this is the way that Daniel is is starting to pray. Now, because God kept his promises to Israel... We can count on him keeping his promises to us as well. And uh, here are just some of those promises. I just went through quickly and put some down just to help me think through. You know, the people of Israel have certain promises that are very specific about the land and the temple. We have all kinds of promises as well. And I just picked on a couple of these to, to help us be encouraged this morning. First of all, we have a high priest who understands us. And we see that in Hebrews 4.14. Um, it's written with a with a double negative to say basically we have a high priest who understands us, sympathizes with our weaknesses. That's who we have as our high priest. And then in verse 16, we can approach that throne of grace then with confidence and receive mercy to help us in our time of need. So we have a high priest who understands. We have come. We can come to the throne of grace boldly. Mercy and grace are available at any time. And then there's some other ones as well. This is one that maybe we don't like, but it is a promise. We will go through testings and trials. 
If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. They persecuted me. They will persecute you also. Now, please understand, this isn't something that has to do with the fact that maybe we sinned in some way and we're paying the consequences for our own wrong actions. This is doing something right and still suffering consequences. So you're behaving and maybe you're being honest and you have a person of integrity and somebody in your company really doesn't like that all that much. Well, you may suffer some some as a result of that. But we don't go through those testings and trials alone, and we need to remember God said it's coming. We should not be shocked or upset by them, and we need to remember He's always with us. That's the next promise. We never suffer alone. So we will go through testing and trial, and then the next one is we never suffer alone. Keep your eyes, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And I was very young when I first heard this. And I, I have to be honest, I focused on the last part of that verse mostly because that was the part that, that I was really concerned about. But God is always with us. And one of the things that's there, and he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And we'll be touching on this verse a little bit later as well. And then the, the last promise I just wanted to miss, uh, put out there was we can resist the devil. We can resist temptation. We can stand firm in our faith and walk with the Lord. Look at what James says. Submit yourselves then to God. So surrender. uh, Try to live under His Lordship. Try to be answering to Him in obedience. He says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, it's important. It's submit to God resist the devil it's it's the things go hand in hand you you can't resist god and submit to the devil and expect to get anywhere other than nowhere good it's submit to god understand he's god you're not understand that he's the one that gives the strength and then resist the devil and god through the holy spirit encourages strengthens and gives us the ability to resist the devil so submit to God, obey His Word, admit that He is Lord, resist, do not give in, don't go along with, don't turn away from anything that God has set before you. So God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. That's where we start with. Let's go on to verse 5 of Ezra 1. Then God stirred up the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Now understand, he's stirring up the hearts of some people. He's trying to get some people to say, hey, it's, it's time to go back. The 70 years is up. Let's go back. Let's rebuild Jerusalem. Let's rebuild the temple. And it's interesting, he stirred up the hearts of the priests, Levites, leaders of the tribes of Judah. And later on it says they're, they're singers and there's also temple servants, those who worked in, in the temple. All of those people's hearts were encouraged and prodded and God is saying, now's the time. Now's the time. Get ready to go. And so the leaders of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, those who could lead the people, are, are there. And, and the people who are going to rebuild the temple, all those things are coming together. Now, it's interesting. Many Jews chose to stay. Many. Some went. And it's a goodly number that went in this first trip. But many more chose to stay in Babylon rather than return to their homeland. 
Now, Persian records indicate that many Jews in captivity had accumulated very large amounts of money. They were very, very wealthy, many of them prominent in government in different places. And so for some of them, they're looking at, at this, giving all of this up and going back to Jerusalem that's in, in kind of, in, you know, it's in ashes, not ashes, but it's, it's really been destroyed. And they're saying, ah, we're going to stay here. We're not going back. Verse 6, And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, those who did decide to go for the journey, and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition as voluntary offerings. So all the neighbors of the Jews that were going back came along and said, Here, you know, we want to help you. Um, and they gave them all the kinds of things they would need for the journey itself, as well as things they might need when they get there, but then also offerings for the actual temple. Now look at what King Cyrus does in verse 7. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So remember, when he, when he hit the city, he destroyed the walls. They started tearing down everything. And they went to the temple. They took everything, every bit of gold, everything that was of any value whatsoever. And then they tore down the temple. All that stuff went into Nebuchadnezzar's gods, uh, you know, place where they stored all the gods, gold and silver and stuff. And, and the reason they did that was that this was in the ancient world way of saying, hey, my God's better than your God. Look, we stole all his stuff and brought it here, and now we've got it. That's really what was behind taking all the stuff and bringing it and putting it in the treasury of your own God. So Cyrus himself brought out all the stuff Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple, and he placed uh, all these things, and he directed uh, someone to begin the treasure of Persia to count these items and present them to Shesh Bazar, the leader of the exiles returning to Judah. Now, you're going to hear two names as you read through Ezra um, in this first section that Zerubbabel was the guy that led them, and then Shesh Bazar as well. Well, really, the thought here is that the one was a, was a Persian name or Babylonian name, and the other was his Jewish name. It's just the same person just being referred to differently depending on what, what's being written. By the way, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah together had portions of it that were written in Aramaic, which was the, the language of the culture in the time. Just like Daniel was written partially in Aramaic and partially in Hebrew. These were the same thing. So they brought all these articles out. And you remember these nations would ransack. Remember when the, <clears throat> when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it into their temple. And this was to show our God Dagon has captured and, and has won. And they woke up the next morning and Dagon was flat down on his face in front of the ark. And that happened, and they eventually sent the ark home. But this, that's what was going on with taking all of these things. Now, just kind of very quickly, in verse 11, it says, In all there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. That's a lot of stuff. Some of them were bold. Some of them were uh, things for incense. Um, and Shesbazar brought all of these along, with, along when the exiles went to from Babylon to Jerusalem. Implication here. Look at what it says in verse 5. The NIV says it a little bit differently. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. I love this phrase. Everyone whose heart God had moved. Isn't that cool? Everyone whose heart God had moved. This wasn't a matter of simply saying, well, you know, 
the conditions are better over there, or you know what, that we've got family property. This was about people whose hearts were moved and touched by the fact that Jerusalem was in shambles. The walls were broken down, houses were destroyed, and the temple was a pile of rubble. And God laid it on the hearts of some people to go back. They responded to God's prodding, and they returned to Israel. Now, many more chose not to. I'm going to share a little bit more about that. Those that chose not to, some of them were very wealthy. Some of them didn't want to go through the journey. Um, some of them may have been too old. Daniel, for instance, apparently was alive at this time, and yet he could not make that journey. That was a journey he, he could not make. And so the journey back to Jerusalem was 900 miles. Uh, it went through dangerous territory. It would take four months... And think of all the stuff they're carrying. I mean, they are carrying pounds and pounds and pounds of gold and silver and other things, not to mention their own things that they need to take back to the land. So there was a whole lot of things that, that they just, the people that stayed didn't want to mess with. They said, you know what? We're comfortable here. We don't want to go through this kind of a trip. And we don't want to do the sacrifice that God is going to require us of, of us there. So it was easier for them. Everyone was free to go, but only a small, really, percentage of all of the people in exile went back. Um, it's interesting because Carol and I have made four major moves in our married life. Uh, we went from Chicago to Bolivia. We went from Bolivia to Colorado. We went from Colorado to Detroit, and then finally from Detroit here. And we spent different years in each place. And after every move, I said, man, that's it. I don't want to do this again. Every single time. I mean, it's just... It, I can't imagine. Now, obviously, they didn't have the same amount of things that we have, but can you imagine traveling for four months to get where you're going and to get there and, you know, a lot of the houses were broken down? And that, that's, what, that's what God is leading them to do. And He chose them and He said, you know, 70 years has gone by, now it's time. It's time for you to go back to the land. And, and we're told that God called them we're not told that those that didn't go were in disobedience. We don't know anything about their hearts. We just know some of the facts, and the facts are that many of them were wealthy, and those that went back were going to have to go through some hard things. But Hebrews warns us about hardening our hearts, and I'm wondering if that wasn't part of what was going on. We're not told that, but you wonder sometimes. Hebrews 3, 7, and 8 says this, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And so, you know, the book of Hebrews is writing many years later, but reminding them of the generation coming out of Egypt and how they rebelled against God. They hardened their hearts. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. Don't harden your heart against God. Now, I just was thinking about the whole idea of having a hard heart and maybe that being one of the reasons people didn't go back. And it started me thinking about my own life and things that God's brought into to my life at various times. And, and this was very early uh, in my Christian walk. I was in Bible college at the time. And um, I had developed a very, very sharp tongue. Man, I could zing them really easily. And I was quick with a comeback and many times uh, putting people down in, in a joking way. I wasn't deliberately trying to hurt anybody, but it did hurt people, I know. Um, sarcastic words, sharp words. 
And then one day as I was in a situation, I don't remember all the details of it, but I remember running into this verse, Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Wow. <laughs> I remember reading that and thinking to myself, oh man, and, and feeling very convicted. Um, now please understand, I wasn't cursing, I wasn't using God's name in vain, but my words, they weren't helpful to anybody. Uh, you know, it made me feel good because I made people laugh, but in some ways I was putting others down in order to do that. I wasn't thinking about their needs. I wasn't thinking about how my words would benefit them. And so when I first really understood and got a hold of this verse, it started a journey in my own life as I started to say, okay, Lord, this is something I want to make sure I do the way you want me to do. I don't want to use my tongue in ways that are inappropriate. I want to be trying to get a laugh at somebody else's expense because somehow that makes me feel good. And so I started this journey with God's help, and I had to continue it because it's easy to slip into Negative patterns, no matter how many years ago it was. And so, this is a challenge. Let me read it one more time. I, whenever I took teams to Mexico, I'd always make them memorize this verse. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, that it may benefit those who listen. What an incredible thing. Their needs are what you're focusing on. So when we sense the Lord moving about something, whatever that may be. Maybe God's working on our hearts and trying to challenge and help us to see something that he wants us to do. Okay, so as we get into chapter 2, I want to just break down very quickly. that There's two major leaders in the book of Ezra. There's Zerubbabel, or his other uh, name. And Zerubbabel leads about 50,000 people. Let's go ahead and put this up there, Nathan. Thanks. Um, Zerubbabel leads about 50,000 people back to Israel um, to rebuild the, ta- the temple. And the temple takes 23 years to build, okay? So they go back to, and we're going to read that about that in just a second, but they go back to Jerusalem and uh, they do build the temple. Now, Ezra comes later. Some people think it's as late as 80 years later, but he comes later and he leads a group of about 5,000 people back to Israel And there's a religious revival under Ezra, and it's very possibly because he's brought the law of God with him. And of course, then they take time to teach it. We will see that in Nehemiah. And and he was a scholar and, and a teacher, and he brought the word of God to help bring about revival. Okay, so that's that's what we know about Zerubbabel and Ezra from this book. Verse chapter two, verse one says this. Here's a list of the Jewish exiles of the provinces who returned from their captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar had deported them from Babylon, but now they returned to Jerusalem and the other towns in Judah where they originally lived. Their leaders were Zerubbabel, and then it gives a whole bunch of others. And if you want to go back and read all of those verses and those names, that's great. Feel free to do that. I'm going to summarize it for you in this uh, in this little chart. The list includes people by family grouping or by clans, if you will, and includes people by geography, where they came from in Israel, and then includes people by vocation, priests, Levites, singers, temple servants, and others. And so all of that is in that list. Okay, And then in verse 64, we get the whole company numbered 43, 
thousand or forty-two thousand three hundred sixty, and then there was besides that servants, and besides that there were men and women who were singers, and so it adds up right around to fifty thousand. And this isn't this to me. I thought was fascinating. They had seven hundred and thirty-six horses, two hundred and forty-five mules, four hundred and thirty-five camels, and here you go, the pickup truck of the of that time, six thousand seven hundred and twenty donkeys or burros. Burros, if you want to say in Spanish. Now the map, let's go ahead and take a look real quickly. This is the journey, starting in Babylon over there on on the far right and um, coming all the way across back to Judah and to Jerusalem. Um, and again, it was a four-month journey, 900 miles, 50,000 people traveling together with all of those animals, which, by the way, were necessary to carry all the stuff they were bringing. And they had cattle that came along as well, which fed them along the way and also helped them start herds when they got back to the to the nation um so here you here you go fifty thousand people showing up finally in jerusalem verse 68 when they arrived at the temple of the lord in jerusalem so they've come into the city they've seen the broken down walls they've seen many of the homes which are destroyed or partially destroyed and they come to the temple mount and they look at the temple which is rubble I mean, there's nothing, there's no stones on top of each other. This is just a pile, uh, a pile of rubble, which had, it had been destroyed. So they, they see, <clears throat> they arrive at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Some of the family leaders made voluntary offerings towards rebuilding God's temple on its original site. So this is, they've already been giving things already. But these guys have said, you know what? From our own wealth, now we're going to give even more. We see what's needed here. And we want to give so that on this spot that God chose, we rebuild the temple. And so even more income came in. uh, 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and robes for the priests. So this is is what's going on then as they come back. And, And the leaders gave as much as they could. And then the rest of the people, you know, the, the, the priests and Levites and everybody kind of settled in the villages around Jerusalem where they had lived in the past, and the rest went to ancestral homelands, back to their towns and villages. Um, and, and they're back, and they're ready to get going. And next week we'll take a look at what happens after that. Now there's an implication here. Uh, 268, uh, verse two, chapter 2, verse 68 says, After they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, some of the family heads gave free will offerings for the house of God in order to have it rebuilt <clears throat> on its original site. You gotta love this, don't you? I mean, four months of really hard travel, okay? There were no air conditioned camels, I guarantee it, you know? <laughs> so here you go, they're traveling across the desert with all of these animals and all these people. They see the ruins of the temple and their first response is, this has got to change. We came here to change this. And we're going to give in order to make that happen. So they gave for the temple to be rebuilt. They gave generously because that was why they had come. Now when you think about giving, and this, this book is full of a lot of those kinds of things that come up and, and you think about them. But I think one of the questions that I have to always ask myself, especially when I'm thinking in complaining ways in my mind, how generous has God been with me? That's a really great question for us all to ask. Now start at the cross and then work from there. But 
How generous has God been? And then, how generous have I been with my giving? That, that, those two should go hand in hand as we're thinking and praying. And one of my favorite verses, and we just saw it a few minutes ago, has several challenging thoughts. Many times we don't think it really applies to giving, but look at what it says. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now for me, learning the lesson of being content with what I have has some, is something that has been really hard at times. Um, at times I've prayed, Lord, if you would just provide this, well then, then this could happen. And every time I do that, it never happens by the way, but every time I do that, the Lord reminds me that He's given me what He wants me to have and He wants me to get on with the job. And, and it's interesting because we have that conversation occasionally. <clears throat> Why should we be content with what we have? That's a question. Why should I be content? Well, because God promised He'd never leave me or forsake me. So I may not have all of the things or goodies or wealth that I want, but what do I do have? I have God. That's who I have. And He said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. So, you know, I'm, I'm struggling maybe with something financially or trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I have to always remember, I have the Lord God. And that's where I need to start. Be content, Mark. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So how do we start to be content with what we have and be free from the love of wealth? Well, we can be free from the love of of pursuit of things if we can continue to go back to the fact that all that I have comes from the Lord, whatever it is. Maybe I work hard for it, yes. And I earn, yes. But God's hand is in every bit of that. And what I have comes from the hand of God. It really does come down to a heart attitude. I had the amazing privilege many years ago of going to Myanmar, or what's now known as Burma, a Buddhist country where believers are persecuted many times and uh, treated badly in many ways. And many of the believers lived in rural areas or agricultural areas, struggling to make ends meet, struggling to have enough to feed their families. And yet they had these churches and, you know, they continued to be witnesses and reaching out to people all around them. And, and these families, many of them didn't even earn income. It was just what they made off their own land. And so they had been taught that, you know, we are to, we are to give to the Lord from what He gives us. And they said, well, how can we do that? And apparently this became a, a practice all over Burma. They would, they would say to the folks, if you don't have income, that's okay. As you start a meal and you're getting ready to cook rice, because that's like 90% of the meals, um, you take a handful of the rice that you're going to cook and put it in a separate bag, cook the rest of the meal uh, for your family. And so at every meal, you take a handful and put it in the bag. And then when the bag gets full, you take it, you sell it, and you give that money to the Lord and to His work. And I remember sitting in one of those very humble homes and thinking, wow, would I be that generous? And I just, I was shocked. And 
There was no complaint. There wasn't a sense of God has done to, terrible things to us. Look, we, we, you know, they were saying, hey, you know, we have a church. We're not being persecuted. Um, we have a home. And, and you go into these homes which are made out of bamboo and, and a bamboo floor. And, and, you know, everything is, you sit on the floor, you sleep on the floor, you sit down on the floor to eat. And yet they're not sitting there angry and upset about that. And they're saying, how can I give back to God? Which is a really, really great question. We need to think ourselves, <laughs> what does it mean to be content? And how can I be generous with God in the way that he's been generous with me? What do we take away from this? Daniel had studied the prophecy of Jeremiah. And we know Daniel was a man of prayer. We know all kinds of things about Daniel. But um, here he is, comes across Jeremiah 29:11, and the Lord says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to, for, for hope and a future. Now, most of us, when we read that verse, oh, that is so awesome. He's got plans to prosper me. That is so cool. He doesn't want to harm me. He wants to give me hope. He wants to give me a future. And, of course, in our minds, we're thinking of it in certain ways, aren't we? But we don't always think of it in the context that this verse came from. And Jeremiah sent this letter to the exiles in Babylon. Because in Babylon, there had come some false prophets who were beginning to tell them, hey, God's going to rip Babylon down and take them out, and we're going to be able to go back home. So, so don't settle down. Just make sure you sharpen your swords and get ready, because we're going to go back. And Jeremiah was writing to say, hey, guess what? That's not God's plan. God disciplined us as a nation, turned us over to the Babylonians. And, and this is what verse 10 says in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to the land. Now, this is written to people in captivity, people who are saying, hey, you know, let's go back. Let's fight the, let's fight the Babylonians. Let's go home. And Jeremiah is saying, no, you're under God's judgment right now. And part of that judgment is 70 years here. And, and remember, he says to them, pray for the peace of Babylon. Pray for them so that you can also have peace. And he, verse 11 is where we hear the verse. So, my, my gracious plan is after 70 years in captivity, I'll bring you back, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen. When you've learned the lessons about idolatry, when you've learned the lessons about being faithful to me, then then I'll bring you home. And he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So the good news is this. You're going to get to go home. The bad news is it's going to be 70 years from right now. The good news is that God has wonderful plans and he's not going to harm them. The bad news is those wonderful plans include 70 years of exile. That's part of the plan God had. And as they went through that, at the other side, the promise was, when you call on me, I will listen, and you will find me when you pursue me with all of your hearts. Now, I'm, I'm really embarrassed uh, if I had to tell you how many times I've ripped that verse out of context. <laughs> I, 
I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a future. And especially when I was younger, I kept saying, well, you know, this is what God says. And I, of course, had my own mind what I meant for him to prosper me. Uh, Lord, this is what I want you to do to prosper me. This is what I want you to do in order to, to fulfill this verse in my life. And um, God never really cared about those plans that I had because he had plans of his own. And I have to be thankful. God's plan included discipline and trials, hard times. And because of those hard things that I went through, he drew me closer to himself. It wasn't just a God's a Santa Claus, so I need to ask for what I want and I'm going to get it. Uh, it. There were times when I really felt like we were going almost like through the fire. And, and again, God's promises were there. They were always reliable, always trustworthy. And it's in those hard times as I learned to submit to what God was doing and submit to His plan that I found God to be very real. Very real. The song we're going to sing in just a minute here, these are the words. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting. You are sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. We have a sovereign God who makes promises and who keeps those promises. What an amazing God we have. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your word, and thank you for the truth here. Thank you that you are sovereign, and thank you that you know what you're doing. And Lord, thank you that we can trust you, and I pray that you'd help me to do that more and more, and that each of us, my brothers and sisters here, would again realize it's your willing, your plan that we want. So we ask for your strength and your help and your encouragement throughout this new week. In your name we pray. Amen.